Carrie Baculo is an army wife, former Carmelite nun, and a mother of six who enjoys living in different places around the world with her family. She writes, every second she gets a chance, and her reflective writing, The Spiritual Journey of Healing, is featured in several blogs and articles. Carrie is currently writing reflections for the best-selling Magnificat. She is the founder of HealedByTruth.com and the Healed by Truth Gallery, which is a free online resource and art gallery made by and for survivors of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church and in their families. Please join me in welcoming Carrie Baculo. Thank you so much. It's so nice to see everyone here today. You ladies are absolutely beautiful. Thank you, and I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. So I'm so happy to be with all of you today. And thank you for the introduction, sister. The Carmelites are so sweet. I'm so happy that they invited me to come today. And uh, as she mentioned, I came in from Germany, so I'm not too jet-lagged today. Thank you, Lord. Because <laughs> we got a, a wonderful day pa uh, planned, and I want to make sure I have lots of energy for everybody. So here I am, and I'm happy to be with you. Okay, so when I was thinking about St. Therese, um, as Sister mentioned, I was a Carmelite nun for three years, and uh, my sister name was Sister Teresita Marie. So I definitely have a special devotion to St. Therese as well. And so I was so happy that she asked me to come uh, to be with you guys today and also to talk about St. Therese a bit in my own story and just tie it all together. So I'm very happy to do that. St. Therese... First off, she had a beautiful devotion to the child Jesus. And her devotion to the child Jesus um, is very dear to my heart as well. St. Therese chose him as one of her two namesakes. So when you become a sister, oftentimes you have, you're dedicated to a particular mystery or a saint or um, you have a special devotion. So one of Therese's special devotions was the child Jesus. And I love that image. It's so precious. She spent a lot of time in her childhood doing small things for the child Jesus. Um, anyone who's read her autobi autobiography, The Story of a Soul, would know that she wrote a lot about the child Jesus. And um, she wanted to let everyone know how much she loved him. When she became a Carmelite nun, she took this devotion with her into the monastery. And it really helped her along the formation of her little way. This is a quote from The Story of a Soul. I had offered myself for some time now to the child Jesus as his little plaything. I told him not to use me as a valuable toy children are content to look at, but dare not to touch, but to use me like a little ball of no value which he could throw on the ground, push with his foot, pierce, leave in a corner, or press to his heart if it pleased him. In a word, I wanted to amuse little Jesus. I wanted to give myself up to his childish whims. I thought that was so beautiful, and I remember reading it in Carmel, and I'm going to use that today just to kind of launch us into the uh, idea of loving Jesus in his infancy, in his childhood. 
So the first question I want to ask is, where do we find the child Jesus in the Catholic Church today? Now, we're definitely going to take a turn here. <laughs> because unfortunately, if we think about the child Jesus, we are very much thinking about children in general. Okay? And so we have to answer honestly if we're going to get anywhere, you know, in, in our spiritual journeys, if we're going to be really healed and receive any kind of grace, we have to be honest with where we're at. And we know we're all living through one of the darkest wounds the Catholic Church has ever borne, okay? Children and vulnerable individuals who are childlike have been sexually abused by priests, bishops, by brothers and sisters in religious communities, by deacons and religious education teachers, by lay ministers, by their family members, by their own Catholic families, by their own Catholic parents. <sighs> this is an unthinkable wound which has left the entire church and the world feeling very, very traumatized and betrayed. The wounds of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church have left survivors feeling abandoned, silenced, and in the dark. For many survivors who want to keep their Catholic faith, there just simply isn't a safe space for them to live their baptismal calling within the church. And this is a real tragedy that we're facing today. So what happens to them? They get left behind. They leave. Unless they are given a way to stay close to Christ. But there has to be an authentic way, especially with wounds like this. You can't, you, you can't, there, there's nothing superficial about it. You have to have an authentic way to move forward. This is the greatest, the greatest dilemma of all time, I believe, in the church and in the world. We have children who did nothing wrong, who did nothing to hurt Christ or the church, and these are the ones who are left behind and abandoned while their abusers carry on in God's name, protected from the inside. This happens not only within the church, but within families as well. I mean, it's almost like a micro, uh, a micro, uh, I'm trying to think of the word. Yes, microcosm of something larger. And so research and studies have also shown that children who are victimized in their own homes are very often the ones that are, that are never helped. Um, they, go, they go left unattended. No one cares for their needs. And so this, this is a real dilemma, not just in the Catholic Church, but just anywhere where you find abuse of children, okay? This is not right. This is not what caring for children should ever look like. And yet, here we are. We have to just be honest. So I want to share with you a little bit about myself. I never go into detail. I'm just letting you know I have great respect for myself, too much respect for myself, for you. I would never do that. But I just want to let you know a little bit about my experience to know where I'm coming from. I was born in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I'm a Burkenia. <laughs> I was born in the early 80s. My parents are converts to the Catholic faith. From my earliest memories, my father sexually abused me. I told my mother when I was very young, but she stood by and did absolutely nothing. She watched him abuse me and simply looked the other way. The abuse continued throughout my entire childhood, and it was worsened by the fact 
that my father used God and the Catholic Church to abuse me. He quoted the Bible. He quoted the catechism. He re-preached the priest's homilies after every mass. He forced me to pray the rosary with him, and he deeply wounded my experience of Christ in the Holy Eucharist. He was an active lay minister and ministered to our faith community with all these evils in his heart. He was an usher, a lector, an altar server, a Bible study leader, a marriage enrichment leader, RCIA sponsor, Eucharistic minister, and he even played the role of Jesus in our parish passion plays. I can't ever express just how damaging these wounds of my father's abuses have been in my life. That my own biological father would abuse me as a child and do it all in the name of Christ while looking like Christ is beyond anything I can ever comprehend. Long story short, I ran away when I was 18 years old and joined the Carmelite nuns in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I ran there, yes, to hide from my crazy father, my abusive home life, but I also ran there because I wanted to find something, I, I needed something nobody expected, and I, I wanted to find something that nobody would have expected from me, because in the cold, dark silence of the abuse, there was someone there with me the whole time that I found, okay? There was a very small, helpless person, another child, who wanted to show me how free I was in front of him. I, too, have a very strong devotion to the child Jesus, whom I encountered every Christmas as a child, and every icon and every painting I ever saw of Mary holding baby Jesus, which they were all over the place, especially in, in New Mexico. And I simply fell in love. No one expected that. I wouldn't have expected it. What was I supposed What a dilemma. You know, like if there was anybody in the world who was set for disaster, it was me, especially on a spiritual course. You know, like what was I supposed to do? But I learned about St. Therese. I read her autobiography. I learned about the Carmelites. Something really hit me deeply. I mean, these are saints that, that are dealing with darkness and silence and solitude through all things that I lived. And yet they were able to somehow be present to God's presence. And that moved me. So I didn't just run away to Carm. I could have ran away anywhere. I could have ran away to Hollywood. <laughs> but I didn't. I love Paul. We just took a Hollywood tour yesterday. Just a shout out. I could have, but I didn't because I've, I had fallen in love with something else. And I fell in love with Christ and, and in his infancy. And I was like, shoot, I got to find a place to take care of him. I got to keep him safe in me. What am I going to do? So I went to Carmel. It's the only place I could think of. I mean, it's a very good place to go and find out how to be present to God in the silence and the darkness. So I went, I ran away from home, 18 years old, joined the Discalce Carmelites of Santa Fe, New Mexico, donned a habit, gave everything away. Wow. <clears throat> During all of those years, 
that I, I spent three years in Carmel. During those years in Carmel, in the silence, in the, in the solitude, I realized that as a child, I was silenced, I was hidden, belittled, denied, and neglected, and abandoned. But in that space of utter decimation and betrayal, I also found something that I didn't expect and that anyone else would have expected. That beside my own crying, shaking humanity was the Christ child who cried and felt the same way I did. This child was also, in a sense, abused, silenced, hidden, belittled, denied, neglected, and abandoned, and left for dead a long time ago. And the place I found him was in the Garden of Carmel. And the immediate connection I made was the Garden of Eden, which Carmelites de definitely focus on. Because Karmel, uh, the Garden of God, you know, the original place where we were supposed to be with God. And as I was present to this child in the garden, I realized that there was an original story written and created by the greatest author, author who ever lived, who created the world for this story. And it began with the first man and the first woman in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were God's children who had a very special calling, but which they sadly never got to experience in full because of the fall. Their greatness was overshadowed by a different kind of monster, kind of like my father, a leviathan who crowded the first scene of human history with lies and deceit. I knew what that was like. It was kind of like my same story. Adam and Eve listened to this beast, and they lost everything. But God called out to Adam and Eve from the garden, cries that were meant for human ears. But those cries were unintelligible to Adam and Eve the moment that they knew evil. They couldn't hear what pulled at their paternal and maternal heartstrings, calling to them from the depths of their beings. They were only given clues, pain in childbirth and toil. They could have gone back for God, for the one they couldn't live without. They tested God's words about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They tested those words. We all know that story. They ate the forbidden fruit. But what I don't understand is why didn't they test God's words about not going back into the garden after they were kicked outside? I know this might sound crazy, but a person like me, I'm like, I get it. I'm, I was left on the outside. Why didn't they go back? I, I, just, I just didn't get it. In, in my opinion, I really feel very strongly that they could have faced the angel, the sword, and the fire. They could have refused to, leave, to live their lives without its fullest meanings. They, they could have refused to, to, to live without God. They needed him. He was their greatest someone. But they didn't. They didn't challenge the angel, the fire, and the sword. They didn't face the reality of their punishment. They just turned and walked away. So I almost feel like I, in a sense, you know, God understands and, and, under, and feels what I'm going through in a deeper way than, than I ever realized through this, this story of humanity. So this child was abandoned for a very long time, 
for millennia, to be exact. And then a young woman named Mary, she faced the angel and the sword and the fire. She faced them bravely and approached God as a child. She gave him birth and held him in her arms, able to finally hear his infant cries in the town of Bethlehem. This woman found her great purpose, humanity's great calling, which had been hidden in ages past. The children of God were given the gift of paternity and maternity in which they are to grow up one day. We're supposed to mature, to create, and to discover that our Father and Creator is so in love with us that He would become our child, helpless and vulnerable in our arms. The gift of God's Son shows us how free God made us, how free He wants our relationship with Him to be. The world will never make sense without this story, the story that comes full circle in the sight of this reciprocity. We reciprocate our love for one another. We are capable of loving God totally as his children and as, as those who are holding him in our arms. God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, but he loves us to the point of becoming our child and living helplessly in the world with us, in a sense, suffering all the consequences of our actions just to show us how free we really are. He meant our freedom. He really, really meant it. And I understand that because, I mean, he meant my father's freedom. He, I, I cried out to God as a child every day, trust me. I, I, I prayed, God, why are you not stopping him? This is awful. I don't understand. And it, it ha- it's taken me all my life, but now I see that he gave my dad freedom. And he meant it. It wasn't a joke. Like, our freedom is real in front of God. And, and if we're going to misuse it and if we're going to hurt other people, I mean, it's awful. And there's consequences from those actions. But God really meant our freedom, even in a situation like me being abused as a child, God doesn't stop and say, wait a minute, I'm, I, 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 never mind. I'm not going to make you guys free anymore. This is too awful. But there's a reason behind it, and he always draws good even out of evil. And I'm, I'm here today, you know, to share that with you. But the importance of our freedom meant for me as a child that I too, that I was free, that I didn't, I didn't have to love God, that I didn't have to fall in love with him. I didn't have to. But I, I, I fell in love with him because I was free to do so. There was no coercion. And, and to, for an abused child, that is the most beautiful gift in the world, the gift of freedom. Because everybody's trying to force you to do something else. And for God to be that generous, to offer me a chance to love him freely, that's beautiful. I feel that today, it's a bit much to ask survivors of sexual abuse in the church to find comfort in their faith. Now, going back to Father's homily with St. Therese, I'm amazed. I actually had never heard that story before, but I, I, I was very moved by it. In a sense, I, I mean, 
forgive me if I'm overstepping my bounds here, but in a sense, I almost feel like St. Therese put that together, and I've never heard that story, but I, I mean, maybe all those pa that pain she had and was like, I wanted, I wanted Diane Vaughn or whoever it was, I want her to be real. It's like, well, St. Therese, here I am today. I'm real. I'm a real person in the church. I'm not fabricated. You know, I went through hell and back, and it's real. My story is real. It's not made up. And so, as Father was talking about how St. Therese struggled with finding comfort in, in her faith at times and wondering if beyond this life there's nothingness, you know, it's something a lot of people struggle with. Everybody does at some point. I, I'm thinking of the survivors in the church, you know, in my own experience. It is too much to ask of us to be comforted by our faith just because of what we face. We have been scarred and wounded by God's own face, for heaven's sake, by everything in the church. You know, it's too much for us to be asked to be sentimental. And, and feelings of comfort do come. I'm not going to say they don't. But it's, it's just, it's not as often. It's not as frequent as maybe people would like or, or need. So there has to be another way, you know, to keep the faith. I think it's more reasonable to ask survivors to keep a space open for God in whatever capacity they can. And through my experience, this is why we need Carmel. Survivors in the church need Carmel. We need our Blessed Mother, her example. We need St. Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross, St. Therese, St. Edith Stein. We need a way to love God in the silence in the solitude, in the darkness of our wounds. I believe the Carmelite saints would have found a way to love God, even in the scandals of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church today. They would have found a way. They would pray and search and dig deep into their own hearts and souls to find a way. So my experience at Carmel has shown me that there is a way. And the Carmelite Saints have been a tremendous guide. On my website, healedbytruth.com, this is my 10-year anniversary of Healed by Truth. I'm hoping that a lot of good things happen this year. Um, I started it 10 years ago um, to launch my reflective writing, The Spiritual Journey of Healing. And it's a free resource for victims in the church and their families. Um, Healed by Truth is completely free. Believe it or not, this is the irony of it. I think it's, God has quite a sense of humor. But it takes an infantry officer of the United States Army who is trained for battle to back and support his wife to bring peace and beauty within the church. So what irony, you know? He's, he's my backer, 100%. Nobody's ever done anything for Healed by Truth except my husband, who's paid for everything. God bless him. <laughs> So big shout out to my husband today who's in Germany helping watch my six kids, our six kids, I'm sorry. And uh, so, yeah, it's the, but I just, I just find that so ironic. You know, who would have ever thought, who would have ever thought, you know, that it would take somebody who's trained for war to, to, to bring peace, you know, but that's what he's doing, you know, by supporting me, letting me come here. 
And he's been my soul backer for Healed by Truth all these years. I love him to pieces. He's an amazing man. I wish you could meet him. Maybe one day you will. But Healed by Truth is celebrating 10 years this Christmas. I launched it Christmas 2010. And in my reflective writing, The Spiritual Journey of Healing, I talk, I, I, I mean, it's all, the spiritual journey is expressed through the Carmelite lens. Uh, one section is devoted to St. Teresa of Avila and her hardships of found, uh, reforming Carmel during the 1500s in Spain, which is very difficult. The Inquisition was going on. Talk about that. St. Teresa of Avila's perseverance, her strength, you know, I, I love her to pieces. She's amazing. And so you all know the story of when she was thrown off her horse as she was trying to go and take care of all her nuns in, in, in a monastery she was helping to found, and then it's raining and pouring, and there's mud all over the place, and the horse kicks her off into the mud. She was mad. I would have been too. She said, Lord, no wonder you have so few friends. If this, I mean, this is how you treat them. You know, she was so human, so down to earth. And so I, I think I, I learned so much from her experience. The thing I learned from St. Teresa of Avila was like hardship. This is going to be hard. You're going to knock on a million doors, and nobody's going to open the door to you. That's been my experience. So St. Teresa of Avila has really helped me out. St. John of the Cross, I have another section devoted to him because he was able to, he, I'm, sure, I'm sure most of you know a little bit about him, but he was helping St. Teresa of Avila reform Carmel. The brothers didn't like it so much. His superiors locked him in a cell for nine months. And they, and they beat him weekly, like tortured him. And so if anybody understands, you know, the wounds of the abused children in the church, I think St. John of the Cross has a heart for them. Absolutely. And he understands their pain. And of not losing the faith through the greatest darkness that anybody could go through. So I write about the dark night of the soul because it's a one big dark night that we got to live through. But it's different. I know I'm going to throw some Carmelite jokes. I told myself, don't do it. Don't do it. Maybe they won't understand. But I'll do it anyway. So, like, as, <laughs> as a nun and as a kid growing up and everything else, it's like, oh, the dark night. It's so terrifying. Now, as a parent of six kids, I'm like, oh, hallelujah. Maybe I'll get some rest. Everybody just leave me alone. <laughs> so, it's, you know, it, it kind of shifts a little bit, you know, in a maternal, a motherly perspective. You know, I almost wonder if Mary's dark night, she's like, oh, I can finally rest. Everybody's leaving me alone. I don't know. So, and then I write about St. Therese and her poverty, her spiritual poverty, because that's huge for survivors in the church. Because we're not going to come to the table with all kinds of wealth. You know, if anybody's more bereft, I don't know. If any, I'm, I'm incredibly poor inside. I don't know if you'll ever meet a more poor person inside. But I am incredibly poor inside. And, like, like hollowed out completely. I've got, really got nothing. And, and St. Therese has really taught me how to rejoice in that poverty through her little way but it has to be authentic it can't can no superficiality here so that that rejoicing comes from 
honestly, God being so beautiful. And even when we're poor, finding the beauty and rejoicing in it, wherever we can find it, St. Therese has taught me that so many times. So I write about St. Therese, and I write about our Blessed Mother, whom Carmel is dedicated to, Our Lady of Mount Carmel. And it's through Our Lady's experience, honestly, that resonates with me the most and the deep, on the deepest level. Because she didn't have a spiritual director. She didn't have bishops and priests and the Pope to console her or to comfort her, figuring out how to care for God, how to change his diapers, you know, how to feed him and care for him and make space for him in Bethlehem when there was no space for him in Bethlehem. How to whisk him away and take him somewhere safe when Herod was out to kill him. You know, there, she didn't have all of us. I mean, in a spiritual way, she did. You know, we were all there. We're all present. But in, the, in her humanity, you know, just, just the sheer difficulty of trying to raise God as a child. What kind of help did she have? Who, who, whose experience was it before? Who could she go to? And say, how did you care for God when he was crying? What do I do? She had to figure it out. And it's a very ancient Carmelite tradition that I'm trying to revive. It was definitely um, frowned upon when the early Carmelites came to Europe after the Saracen warriors kicked them out of the Holy Land. But they came with this idea that they were Mary's brothers and sisters. They knew they were God's children. That was unquestionable. They knew, without a doubt. They were our Heavenly Father's sons and daughters. But they recognized Mary's position and how they too had a sense of being a protagonist working alongside her, saying, how can we help you, Mary, to bring Christ into the world? We want to help you. They, they, they had a sense of responsibility. I think it's a great stance to take, especially for survivors in the church. Because when nobody is going to make space for them, they can make space for God in their lives. They can go to church on Sunday. No one's going to come knocking on their door and carry them on a mat and place them at the altar for mass. It just doesn't happen. Nobody's ever done it for me. But you can wake up on Sunday morning and you can say, Mary, you knew how to take care of God when he was crying and when he was little. I think I can go to Mass for an hour and make space for him. It's a small, it's a little thing, you know. It's, it's, <sighs> am I changing the world? No. I'm showing up for church on Sunday and I have space for Christ in here. And I'm living my baptismal calling. Nobody can do that for me. And, and so, I mean, that's what Carmel has to offer. Our, our great calling to help move the gospel forward in our lives and in the world. So I want to share with you that recently my family and I, my family and I went to Alt Otting. And my friend Monica's here from Bavaria. She flew with me out from Germany. I'm not pronouncing that correctly. German is very hard. Alt Otting is a shrine to Our, our Lady um, in Bavaria. 
just minutes away from Pope Emeritus Benedict's favorite um, town where he grew up. And um, my family and I went to Alta Otting, and we also stopped by Pope Benedict's home, uh, place of birth in his home village um, just a couple days after Christmas. And the Chapel of Grace in Alta Otting sits modestly in a big open courtyard, okay? And it's surrounded by churches and cathedrals, and they call it the Lords of Germany. And so many people go there to pray and ask God for grace and, and to ask our Blessed Mother for her prayers, for her intercession. It's a huge pilgrimage place. The outside chapel is plastered with paintings, original works of art done by artists from all over the world who have wanted to capture in some small way the magnanimity of grace working through Our Lady, working through the child Jesus whom she holds in her arms, working through our prayers and our deepest hopes. And inside the chapel, pilgrims come hoping to find the grace they need to face their impossible circumstances. So when I was in front of Mary and the child Jesus there in the chapel of grace a few weeks ago, I prayed for each one of you who are going to be here today. And I asked Our Lady to help you all in a special way, to give you the grace to move forward, to, to heal, you know. And no matter what you've been through, it might not have been abuse, it's trauma of some sort, unfortunately, in this very broken world. I prayed that we could all have our hearts renewed and find the peace we need to find God through the darkness, through the silence, through the solitude. So that no matter what happens in our lives, we can always look at the child Jesus with St. Therese and the Carmelites and say, yes, we have space for you in your infancy, in your childhood. We have space for you. I know... Um, I have something I wanted to share with you from Alt Otting. I brought baby Jesus all the way from Germany. And I, I did not take him from his mother. <laughs> no one can do that, by the way. I found him in the courtyard at some souvenir shop. But I have a little baby Jesus from Alt Otting, okay? And I brought him with today because um, I just want to share with you something that I found through Carmel and through my own family life. So the sisters, um, the Discals Carmelites from Spain, uh, following the tradition of St. Teresa of Avila, would, had a very human relationship with Christ in the Gospels. St. Teresa was so mad that uh, people in Jerusalem wouldn't take care of Jesus and invite him to their houses for dinners. And so she would have the sisters put on dinners for Jesus during Holy Week. I mean, she was very human in her love for Christ, and I love that about her. And one of the things we did every Christmas, was we would have a baby Jesus bigger than this, and he'd be in the middle of the chapel, and we'd sing him lullabies every night. That's just what we did. It was beautiful. So I know Christmas has passed, but Jesus is always still with us in his childhood. He's an eternal presence. So my idea was that maybe we could all sing to him. Okay, and just kind of revive that love that we all have for the Christ child at Christmas time. And so I thought maybe we could sing to him now. 
and in a small way convey our love for God and maybe like his mother and, and the Carmelites of ages past, console God and let him know that everything is going to be okay. So. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright, round yon virgin mother and child, Yeah.